This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ideas Matter by William Collins. The big ideas of our times discussed by the brightest thinkers. It's 10.02 a.m. and the editors of William Collins, publishers of fascinating non-fiction for over 200 years, have arrived for their weekly podcast meeting. Arabella, um, this week it's your turn and I believe you've got Helena Morrissey. I have. The most elegant woman in business. I'm Helena Morrissey, founder of The 30% Club and author of A Good Time to Be a Girl. The idea we're discussing today... How do we reinvent the workplace with diversity and difference at its heart? So, Arabella, um, the name Helena Morrissey, or Dame Helena Morrissey? Dame Helena Morrissey. Um, will be very familiar to anyone who's ever set foot in the city, but um, for you know people who don't know who Helena is and what, and what she's done with her work, can you introduce her for our listeners? Well, Helena Morrissey is probably most famous for her career as a financier in the city. Um, she is, however, a philosopher graduate uh, from Cambridge and uh, went into the city as a graduate trainee, had a baby quite young, certainly when she was still in her 20s, and despite doing brilliantly in her city career, missed out on a promotion. She was devastated. She said, well, what, what have I done wrong? And uh, the answer she was given by her then employer was, no, you're doing great. We just didn't quite believe in your commitment to this firm because she'd had a baby at which point she left and joined another fund she was mentored by an extremely um, forward-thinking managing director and quickly herself took over position as ceo or md of newton which she grew i'm going to forget the figures but she grew from let's say you know an eight billion pound fund to a 350 billion pound fund um helena was doing all of this whilst uh, her family was growing um so the other thing that people know about helena is um not only her elegance and her brilliance as a city financier but she is also the mother of nine children so she's um quite a high achiever <laughs> And she's a passionate proponent of not only do we need to be diverse in our thinking and forward-looking in our thinking and thinking about different ways for the good of us all as human beings, but it is also very good for the bottom line. And she's been pushing this message passionately and with great eloquence on public stages across the world. And she's an all-round fantastic inspiration. So, dear listener, consider the matters arising from this conversation with Helena Morrissey, speaking with her editor, Arabella Pike. 
a good time, I think, to be a girl sort of growing up now rather than necessarily a good time to be a woman. I think it's a better time to be a woman now, but I think particularly for young girls and, you know, I'm including people just graduating now, I'm not just saying children, that actually it's increasingly a genuinely absolutely good time to be a girl because you can influence what happens next. And you have choices. Which and you have, in the past was not necessarily the case. Exactly. People want to also, you know, there's a desperation almost on the part of many city firms and in other sectors to have better gender balance. There's a realisation that it does make for better decision making, better financial results for a company. And so it's not just a kind of politically correct or we hope there'll be a few women that stay the course, but they really want to listen and learn. So unlike my early days, you know, when people were really not that interested in how different an experience it might be, particularly, but not only if you're a mother, but particularly if you were trying to balance that as well. Now I think companies are really, really keen to learn and to make their environments, their workplaces more female friendly. And you argue very strongly in the book that you know diversity is not only ethically right, but it's good for business. What makes you say that? Well, I think there was a realisation at the aftermath of the financial crisis, particularly that, you know, and it seems so obvious that having one type of person, and I don't mean just all men, I mean often men cut from a very similar cloth, educated similarly in the same social circles, that that couldn't possibly be just the optimal team. I mean, you're bound to have mistakes made just because you hadn't thought about it in the way that somebody outside the group might think about it. And I think sometimes people think that group think which was held up by the regulators, by commentators as being a real causal factor in the financial crisis. They think it just means people agreeing with each other. And there is an element of that, but it also means a lack of challenge. It means you actually end up with people thinking, well, this is the only way to do things. I do think we still suffer from that in the highest echelons of many businesses, particularly in the city, because there's still, you know, there may be a few more women around, but we haven't got a lot of socioeconomic diversity. We haven't got lots of people of colour. We're not representative of society. And so um, I think that argument's well made in theory. It's just not lived and breathed in practice all the time. No, not at all. And have you seen some particularly good efforts from financial organisations or big companies to try and change this workplace for the people entering it now? And what does that look like? I have seen really good efforts. It isn't at all consistent. And there are a lot of companies that pay a lot of lip service to this issue. But one, I'm I'm happy that I'm sure they'll be happy for me to name them. Deloitte's has done a really intensive work on improving the culture, because often, again, you have special diversity and inclusion initiatives, and that's not enough to change behaviours. And what they realised several years ago now, and this was really an initiative of the current chief executive in the UK, David Sproul, that actually there were difficult behaviours that weren't being corrected. And these were sometimes on the part of clients of the company. And so they put in place a really intensive piece of work that's ongoing and they'd be the first to admit that, but started with women telling their stories. And of course, a lot of time people don't want to divulge because they're afraid of retribution or recriminations. And so they had actors or women playing other women, and they made people, the partners, listen to an audio recording of these stories, which had a bit beginning, middle and end, as good stories do, including how the women were impacted by what happened to them. And sometimes it was sort of microaggressions, everyday sexism, as it's fashionably called. Yeah. And other times it was something awful happening, which really should have been called out. And they then carried it through. So 1,100 partners went through this. It was mandatory. And they rolled it out more widely. And 
and ended up firing 20 partners as well because they wouldn't you know they couldn't get the message through and those repeated behaviors and it might sound aggressive it might sound over the top but actually it's what's needed I think sometimes just talking about something isn't the same as actually doing something about it. No, absolutely right. What a great example. And do you see other companies doing that, copying that example? Well, not as as much as I'd like. I mean, there are certainly some cases where companies, the light bulb moment happens and they realise that actually this is really about reprogramming organisations, about changing the whole system, not just having a few special efforts, um, not treating women as a sort of special interest group. But what I've seen, I mean, I chair something now called the Diversity Project, which is in the industry that I work in, the investment industry, which has the worst gender pay gap figures of all industries, I'm afraid to admit. But now we see the executives, you know, the chief executive and other senior executives level actually talk about going on sort of behavioural change. Three and a half days, there was a course um, being cited by one practitioner the other day. They said it had changed the way he thought about things. It's not about doing a little 20-minute computer-based unconscious bias training, which is very sort of scratching the surface of the issue. It's really getting quite deep down into why people behave in certain ways. It sort of picks up on Sheryl Sandberg's great book a few years ago, Lean In. Would you say that we are now leaning into a different, less patriarchal structure in the workplace or not? Is there still too much to do? Well, I think that it, it does vary from company to company. I mean, one of the messages from my own book is, is really it's important for women to find an environment where they can thrive. And I certainly, after that first experience, found an environment where the culture was completely conducive to not just me thriving, but people of a diverse nature in all sorts of respects. So I think that there are environments where it's absolutely the right message to lean in. I just don't want people to think, particularly women, that actually you arrive somewhere, it's not all it's cracked up to be and their only choice is to lean into the status quo if it's not right and you can't change things and I'm afraid the message is you have to leave and find another environment but where it's where you have allies I mean I think it's incredibly important to have allies to have people who really have your best interests at heart and sometimes don't think that they just have to be other women it's really powerful to have a man championing you as well. And this is all wonderful for the hugely ambitious. Do you think these lessons apply to the many people who don't particularly wish to desire to be a COO or a CEO? I think so. I think the important thing is to feel that you are happy and, and at work, that you are fulfilling your potential, that you are doing work that you feel is meaningful and valuable to both yourself and to to others that seems to be a common thread particularly amongst women I think that actually we want work with meaning I suspect many men do too but they maybe don't vocalize it quite so much so no what I'm not saying is there's only one way to live a life and I'm not saying that everyone should be ambitious but I do see a lot of people a lot of women saying that they feel very frustrated and they feel undermined by things that happen to them and that shouldn't happen to to anybody whatever the level they are in a company of course not what role do you think flexible working plays in all of this? Well, I think it plays an important role and I just want to make sure that people don't see this as just an option for women. I think it's sometimes tarred with the brush of people being perceived as just working part-time or not terribly committed. Whereas actually, and I was part of um, a big study called Equal Lives conducted by Business in the Community's Gender Equality Campaign that I chair. This is part of the Prince of Wales 
responsible business network and it has a lot of members. Over 10,000 people, mainly men, completed this survey last year and they said, nearly 9 out of 10, said that they felt that a father should be playing just as a bigger role in their children's upbringing as the mother and yet today, eight times more women are likely to be the so-called lead parent. Men need to ask for flexible working too and in an era where... We know we have great technology now. In fact, part of the problem is switching off. Indeed. Um, is that I'm sure we'll we come should on to that. <laughs> have different ways of working and not just expect man or woman to have to trek in, do the painful commute, pollute the atmosphere um, and you know feel exhausted by the time we even start work. We should be exploring much more radical ways of, of harnessing great skills and inputs, not just a few different practices that women sometimes are allowed to well, do. of course, and presumably your first job, which you were turned over for when you came back from maternity leave for the first time, they worried that flexible working might be a desire and that was a problem. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it wasn't really an option then because this was, you know, my son is now 27 and married himself. There was no such thing as the internet, strangely <laughs> that may be to believe. And the only way you could make a contribution was physically at your desk. And that obviously is quite different today. And I speak at a lot of schools and universities and business schools. And what I'm struck by all the time is that young men, just as much as young women, say that they want to have balanced lives too. They they are ambitious. They do want to have great careers, and so do the women. But they also want to play a part in their future family's upbringing. I think this is a great opportunity. And it's a risk for companies that don't get that. A lot of people say to me, oh, well, once they start working, they'll just fall in line with all of the ways of working of the past. But I see that people feel less loyal to their companies than those companies are are assuming. Their loyalty lies to their networks and to themselves, frankly. And they they want an odyssey, not just a career. This sort of ties into my next question, which is, you know, about the definitions of success. Do you think that we, our generation, or the older generation, has defined success much too narrowly and that that is changing with Most young people? Most definitely. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons as well why women have tended to not succeed, and I'm using sort of inverted commas around that, in the classic sense of it, because we haven't necessarily felt that getting to the top of our chosen career is the most important thing in life. It's alongside maybe many other criterions of personal success that we might have. And I do think, say, more men as well as women are broadening out their own definitions. Success today seems to mean, you know, having well-being, you know, being healthy, having mental well-being as well as physical well-being and yes playing a part in our communities as well as our families lives and that has to be great for society it doesn't mean that companies can't extract as the word is often used you know great things out of people um in exchange for for paying them well and for them having a very satisfied career as well it just means that we have to think more holistically about what success looks like indeed so just to bring this back to the personal how do you draw the lines between your professional and your personal life you're famous for having a very large family well I think sometimes and it's not a a fashionable concept but one has to be a bit selfish and sometimes I've realized that I have to you know I, I do decide actually I want to be at home that evening to spend time with my family which is growing but not through my own childbearing but through my my children's childbearing now and I actually have realized that that is you know the best use of time for not just me personally and selfishly but also for them and for the wider world as well that I have to live and breathe you know what I'm what I'm talking about here and clearly if I'm going to get to the end of a working week and feel very exhausted and frazzled and no good to anybody that's not great for me and it's not great for my family so I just encourage women to not feel 
that we can't say no sometimes. I've learned to say no. I've obviously have to say yes quite a lot of the time to <laughs> very nice invitations to hopefully influence others to you know strive for for things that they really do want to have but but I also have to say no sometimes and what about these images of perfection that we're bombarded mm. with daily through social media or the media generally do you think that's setting unrealistic expectations for young women in particular but women generally what about targets and quotas What's your view of companies who use those in terms of recruitment and promotion? Well, I do think it's important to to have targets. I'm not a fan of quotas, which is about legislation, about mandating change. But I think it's very important to measure whether we're making any progress. Sometimes if we sit in a room and we network with each other, we can get a false sense of security. We can think we're all making progress, but actually we're not getting promoted or achieving what we set out to do. And I think it lets companies off the hook too, because it's very easy to say that you care passionately. I mean, if another person stands up and says how passionate they are about diversity and inclusion, and yet clearly is not doing anything about it, I think I'll scream. But having a target (laughs) and being really honest about whether one's making any progress against it, I think is is the middle path and is the way to really hold people's feet to the fire as well. And I don't mean just the targets about results uh, sometimes as well. I mean, I know at my own firm now, what we do is we look at, you know, the pipeline of talent and we look at is there real sort of strength in that in terms of diversity in all dimensions. And again, it's not just achieving the success, but it's just the path to success and being forensic about the data. Of course. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I read somewhere that you were criticised for taking feminism to FTSE 100 leaders who were exclusively male. But of course, that's all about not just talking to ourselves as women and people wishing for diversity in the workplace. Well, exactly. I mean, women talking to women about women's issues is never going to solve things. And I've realised that the tendency, and I don't think it's deliberate, is to leave diverse individuals, underrepresented individuals in charge of sorting out their own underrepresentation. I learned through making an error, really, because the first women's network that I set up tended to be women talking to each other, 
that actually that was not the way to get change to happen, that actually we needed those in power. And they are, to this day, mainly white, middle-aged, affluent men. And I have nothing against that category. I mean, that sometimes people say, oh, it's very divisive to use that terminology. But actually, a lot of men say, well, look, I'm not diverse myself. We need them as allies. We need them as champions. And we need them to feel comfortable with welcoming other types of people into their space. This is not a threat. This is about making our businesses better, making their jobs easier, because they understand perhaps the consumers of the products that their firm is making, or they understand uh, the community in which they operate better. So this is about positive changes. It's not about saying, look, we come militantly. Perhaps if nothing works, that might be the last resort. People have asked me what I feel about the suffragettes, and I completely, you know, it wouldn't be my first approach, but I understand nothing was working and they had to get attention. Then, you know, I'm not criticising them for that approach either. But Radical today, action required. Yeah, today we don't have to do that, I'm pleased to say, but we do have to keep making our voices heard. And what about, you mentioned about the pipeline of people putting themselves forward for these jobs. Presumably there is more work to be done in widening and broadening that in socioeconomic terms and educational terms so that people from less privileged educational backgrounds could feel able to apply for some of these top companies. There's always talk of role models, it being so difficult to find. I mean, again, in fund management... A recent study showed we, there were 12 black fund managers across certainly the city. I mean, that's a tiny fraction, and it's very difficult for those 12. I mean, people have said sometimes they feel the burden of needing to be out and about and sort of talking at schools and, you know, socialising the, the concept even that you Indeed. can apply. Yeah. And one thing that does worry me is that I think a lot of the processes that have been put in place to sort of so-called standardised recruitment, you know, to have a more professional approach so it's not just who you know that can get you into that first important job. I think in some ways they have undermined our efforts to be more diverse as well because they tend to fit, again, with one type of person. So, for example, video interviews. A lot of people have told me, a lot of women, a lot of people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, they say they just freeze and they just don't feel that they, you know, they, they're all about relating to somebody yeah, um, and actually feeling that they could fit in. And this idea of just speaking to a camera, they're not trained to do that. They don't feel comfortable doing that. And so I just urge companies that might think, oh, this is taking out human biases, that actually might be introduced more biases. One, indeed. The other problem that seems to beset a lot of women at the sort of junior middle ranking is an inability or a reluctance to negotiate hard for their packages. Mm. What would you say to anyone who was finding themselves in that situation? Well, it's really important to overcome your nervousness, or your reticence, because time has taught me that actually if we don't stick up for ourselves, then unfortunately one is likely to get paid less well than you should be. What I suggest to people is that they really analyse their own contribution and they go in armed with the evidence. So they take out as much as possible the emotion because it's very easy to get upset, particularly if you realise, which a lot of women contact me even to this day to say they've just discovered a, a male colleague is paid much more than them and they're doing pretty much the same job. And I say, just go armed with the facts, you know, don't make a drama out of it, at least not in the first instance. Go in very calmly. It often takes the wind out of people's sails and they'll be 
utterly afraid often of anything being escalated. You know, the law is on your side. Yeah, exactly. And just go in really confident that actually you have a case. Don't make a habit of it. Do it every five minutes and really become a pain. But just <laughs> choose your moments. I mean, you can't win every little battle, but actually really important to win the war um, and make sure people don't take you for granted. And what about the British Working Week, which I believe is the longest in Europe, which kind of goes back to lifestyle professional work-life balance do you think it should come down and be legislated against or do you think it should be left to the individual to work as hard or as little as they wish well I think a little bit of both if that's possible I mean I have seen where you know things like uh, the gender pay gap data has been mandated then companies are now taking that issue seriously and I think giving some guidelines and at the same time trying to encourage and sometimes through showcasing what really works ways of measuring outputs not inputs I mean that's where the working week naturally comes down because I know from the time that I spent working all hours that I was given that it's counterproductive in the end it does not lead to the right judgments being made it does not lead to sustainable careers and if people are going to have to work longer because we're going to live longer Any company is going to, theoretically, should want people to be working well, being productive. So I think companies ideally need to be shown different tools to do that and give examples where it's not working, where long, long working weeks actually cause mistakes to be made. I found through the 30% Club's work that actually when people saw the benefits, really believed in it for themselves, then you didn't need any legislation. Tell us a bit more about the 30% Club. Well, this was set up in answer really to the situation we found ourselves in after the financial crisis when it was particularly obvious that boards uh, had contributed to the failures that were very cataclysmic to society as well as to the companies infected. And suddenly it became very obvious that having very narrowly focused boards, there were only 12.5% women on FTSE company boards, the top 100 companies in the UK, only just over 7% on the next 250 companies by size that that could not possibly be the the optimal team and that was a window of opportunity for me and others who joined me to campaign more effectively than we'd been able to do before for a better gender balance on board so we set the goal of 30 percent it took us a bit longer to reach it than we'd hoped but we're now at 31 percent women on FTSE company boards my favorite statistic is the fact we went down from 152 all male boards across the top 350 companies to just two today. You know, really over that time, that was because the men, the chairman, and when we started 99 out of the FTSE 100 chairs were men, they bought into this. They weren't being told what to do so much as realising that actually it was in their interest to do it. It was in their interest. And so they got very competitive with each other, which was something (laughs) that I quite enjoyed actually at the time, to actually recruit great women. And it also, I think, helped them to rethink about what it means to be a great boardroom candidate, that it wasn't a question of sort of people who all hung out with each other since they went to school aged eight. But actually, and I'm only slightly exaggerating there, I've sat in lots of city meetings where I've realised that these people have known each other for 40 years, not just, you know, the last 10. Astonishing. But actually now they needed to, actually having the challenge from other people was really important to getting the dynamic right and to avoiding a future financial crisis. So, Helena, amazing career that you've had right at the top of the city and as a campaigner for diversity and women's rights. Amazing. You've written a recent book. Can you tell me a little bit about why you decided now is the time to take out your pen for the first time? (laughs) 
Well, I think one of the frustrations for me has been that often people are, are still very siloed in their thinking about women in the city and women in business. It hasn't really entered, I think, into the consciousness broadly that actually this is a great opportunity to fuse this debate about ways of working in the future and the whole gender inequality that still prevails, particularly at the highest levels. And I do think that we need to move away from sort of women's issues and, you know, narrow feminism to actually thinking about how we want to all live and work productively in the 21st century and beyond and how we make our lives enjoyable, more sustainable, how we use technology to the good. So that was why, and I did feel, you know, having spent 30 years in the city that I probably couldn't have written a book entitled A Good Time to Be a Girl up until now because <laughs> I could say it's a better time to be a girl, but I do feel genuinely that companies really want women to thrive and actually it's an advantage in some senses, particularly at the beginning of a career. I think it's quite hard still for women mid-career or toward the top. We're still the anomaly, but I'd Absolutely. love to see many, many more young girls think, yes, I can do that. And it's perfectly possible to have a family life as well. Was that the ambition as you set out or did you find that as you began to write? It was my ambition at the outset. And I have to admit, I mean, this was my first book and I threw out most of the material I'd written after the first few weeks, actually, because it was very easy to go off piste. It was very easy to write it like a long article for a newspaper. And obviously a book has to have much more structure and I did build and develop my argument and learn more myself as I researched. I think it's a very interesting experience as a business person who's not used to writing in that kind of context to develop hopefully something that will inspire and encourage others. My story is not necessarily a classic one as well. And I think sometimes people describe me as unrelatable, having so many children and having reached a CEO level and so forth. I actually think there are many commonalities and I'm not just saying that because I want people to read the book but I actually think you know I I very much can relate to what it's like to be a working mum I very much can relate to times in my life when I've had absolutely no money and we're worried about financial stress Mm. it's easy for people to think well now you know things are different but we wasn't always the case go through these very convoluted paths I think I think one of for me when I was working with you on the book it was quite hard to find the right balance between the ideas in the book which are applicable to anyone who reads it and your personal experience and that was an interesting working conversation that we had about you know because obviously there's lots of you in the book but how much to make it personal and how much universal Yes, and I think that that has remained as a dilemma. Someone described it as a memoir manifesto. Yes, exactly. And I guess that was the best description in the end because I did want to illustrate it through personal experience. But also, of course, I have done some things around women in general and gender diversity generally. And a lot of women have shared their stories with me as well. I obviously couldn't necessarily name them in the book. They wouldn't have liked that. But I wanted to share their experiences as well. And I hope that it's applicable. Certainly women have told me who have read it, that they have found it helpful, whatever stage they're at. And it is a bit different from saying, actually, you know, you own it, you boss it, you go girl. Um, What I'm trying to do is get across as well. You can be a feminine feminist, can be feminine and develop a really strong career as well. 
So a couple of those experiences, are there any that stick out in your mind that people fed in? Yes, I mean, certainly in the city, I was at the gym, because about to do a Pilates class, and a woman came up to me and said, oh, she recognised me and she wanted to tell me her story. And it was, you know, she'd recently joined a firm, a firm I know well, and one where the CEO is ostensibly very pro-working women and very keen on pushing diversity generally. But her experience had been quite different, and she had felt under great pressure to travel very long distances to Australia, literally, in a couple of weeks after having joined, despite having said at interview that she had two small children and really did not want to sort of go overseas unless it was absolutely necessary. And of course, it was a classic example of a disconnect. Companies don't necessarily walk the talk. And also because she'd made a success of it, being a classic woman, you know, I'm going to do these trips as best of my ability. She was kept being asked. I mean, yeah, of she literally she's good at it. So go again. Good at it, so go ahead and ask to do more. So we had a great conversation about, you know, how I felt she needed to absolutely unashamedly point out this disconnect and, you know, restart and actually press a reset button. And I hope that she did that. We didn't swap cards, but it made a big impression on me because she actually was quite distraught about what had happened, having made a really conscious decision to somewhat downshift in her career, um, so she thought, and then found herself... And set the terms. Yeah, so that was one story. I mean, I have to admit, recently I spoke at um, another firm and I was introduced to the, the boss of the whole company. He didn't actually stay to my talk and afterwards the woman who had invited me emailed me from her home account to say that after that discussion immediately after she left the room she had been fired because she had raised a behavioral complaint against him so obviously that was something to follow up on and again she'd been asked to sign a non-disclosure agreement all of this kind of stuff that is so familiar with the whole me too so it's very much a live issue i'm not claiming everything is fixed i want people to realize that they are not alone in the way that people might have been many years ago and that the law is on their side if all else fails exactly a memoir manifesto (sighs) for women and anyone wanting better things. Any man who wants to play a part or boy who's interested in, you know, equality, I hope that you would find it interesting too. Helena, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been fascinating. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. That was Helena Morrissey in conversation with Arabella Pike. Our programme today was brought to you by William Collins, an imprint of HarperCollins Publishers, and was produced by Matt Hill at Rethink Audio. People who helped put this episode together are Tara Al-Azawi and Jack Chalmers. Share your thoughts on this podcast by emailing ideasmatter at harpercollins.co.uk or on social at WM Collins Books. You can buy A Good Time to Be a Girl, Don't Lean In, Change the System as a paperback, audiobook or ebook where Helena dives even deeper into the ideas discussed this week. Thank you for listening, and keep an eye out for the first chapter from the audiobook of A Good Time to Be a Girl, which will appear in this feed on Friday. And we'll meet you back here next week, when we'll discuss how humanity can fix the climate change problem with Dieter Helm. So it's not just you get paid for the carbon, you get paid for the biodiversity enhancements you made, which may come through the new agricultural subsidy regime. You get money from the water company because you reduce the pollution. You get money for flood defence because you slowed the water flow. And if you really think about it, the health service should be paying you too. And I envisage that being an auction platform. You go onto a car boot sale and you buy and sell stuff. 
Why shouldn't you be able to trade all these things together and capture the revenue together? So that's how I see it working. To hear that episode first, don't forget to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify and on Acast. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365-day returns.